Hi, welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, September 26th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. I hope everyone's doing well after a beautiful weekend. It's definitely starting to feel like early fall out there. And I have to say, it's definitely my favorite season that I've experienced in New Mexico so far. And you know, the change in weather also means election season is inching closer. Later this week on NMPBS, I'm going to speak with the executive director of New Mexico Voices for Children and Wilhelmina Yazi, a plaintiff in the historic Yazi Martinez lawsuit. They're going to talk to me about Constitutional Amendment 1 that's on the ballot this fall. If approved, the annual amount of money taken from the land-grant permanent fund used for early childhood education and public school funding would increase. Right now, it's at 5%. This amendment would push it up to 6.25% each year. You can watch that interview Friday night at 7 o'clock on New Mexico in Focus on NMPBS. For now, let's get right to the headlines impacting New Mexicans. New Mexico State Senator Daniel Ivy Soto has been removed from his position as chairman of the New Mexico Finance Authority Interim Committee. That's as controversy around sexual harassment accusations against the senator swirl. Senate President Pro Tem Mimi Stewart announced the move Saturday. To this point, Senator Ivy Soto remains chair of the Senate Rules Committee. This all comes after a series of developments last week, starting with an unconfirmed announcement from Ivy Soto that a Senate investigation into those allegations of sexual harassment against him was over and that he had been cleared. But a special counsel's report, published in the Santa Fe Reporter, showed sufficient evidence in two of three reported incidents. In just a few minutes on the podcast, Gene Grant and the Line Opinion panel talk through those developments and an extortion claim from Ivy Soto against President Pro Tem Stewart. The State Public Regulation Commission is concerned New Mexico's largest electric providers might not be able to meet demands during peak seasons in 2023 and 2024. The commission held a special meeting Thursday with utility executives. The group discussed supply chain issues that have delayed projects meant to replace output from the coal-fired San Juan Generating Station, which is scheduled to shut down this week. According to the Associated Press, PNM executives say they will have quite a hole to fill when the plant closes. Solar and battery storage systems were initially expected to be online to fill that void, but they won't be ready in time. Utility executives say inflated prices for materials and delivery, along with supply chain holes, are standing in the way of completing those supplemental projects. A new evaluation shows serious oversight issues of state-operated hospitals particularly when it comes to the New Mexico State Veterans Home in Truth or Consequences. The Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services recently found examples of substandard care and patients who were harmed at that facility. According to the Associated Press, the review found the State Veterans Home failed to properly adjust care for a patient who had fallen eight times. That patient later died after being found unresponsive after another fall. In a different instance, a diabetic patient was sent home with insulin, but no glucose meter. Now, if those and other shortcomings aren't fixed by June, the facility risks losing funding agreements with Medicaid and Medicare programs. A contract has been awarded to build pumping plants that will bring drinking water to parts of the Navajo Nation in northwestern New Mexico. Friday, the Bureau of Reclamation announced an Arizona company earned the contract to build two pumping plants on the Navajo Gallup water supply project. 
The plants will be built in San Juan County. They will be key parts of the plan to deliver treated water from the San Juan River. The Associated Press reports the Navajo Gallup Water Supply Project will use about 280 miles of pipeline, pumping stations, storage tanks, and two treatment plants to bring water to the Navajo Nation and the city of Gallup. The Bureau of Reclamation is expected to complete it by 2027. In our first segment of the podcast, Gene and our line opinion panel get into those new developments in the Daniel Ivy Soto harassment scandal that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Gene's going to lay out all of the details, but it's important to note when this conversation was recorded, Senator Ivy Soto had not been removed from his role as chairman of the New Mexico Finance Authority Interim Committee. With that in mind, here's Gene along with our panel for the week. That's former State Senator Dee Dee Feldman, Merritt Allen of Vox Optima Public Relations, and political psychologist and author Martha Burke. Now we start today with some key developments in a sexual harassment scandal surrounding District 15 State Senator Daniel Ivey Soto. This week, Mr. Ivey Soto announced an investigation into allegations of sexual harassment against him had been indefinitely suspended with no further action to be taken. However, a document published Thursday by the Santa Fe Reporter shows an investigation by a special counsel found probable cause to indicate that Mr. Ivy Soto violated anti-harassment policies in two of three reported incidents. But there's another twist. Mr. Ivy Soto now claims he received a call at the direction of Senate President Pro Tem Mimi Stewart advising him to resign as chair of the Senate Rules Committee or the document would be leaked. He reported that call to the FBI alleging attempted extortion. Now, there are a lot of questions to be answered, but let's start with this investigation. If there was probable cause in two instances, Martha Burke, why would the four-person Senate panel in charge of the investigation drop it, like Mr. Ivy Soto claims? It's hard to know, Gene, but mm -hmm. if you look at the makeup of the group, it's possible that they just couldn't agree. Mm -hmm. There may have been one person that held out. There may have been two, probably no more than that. But if they couldn't agree, and they weren't willing to say he's guilty or he's not guilty. They just said, uh, let's just take a dive on this one, which was not very courageous, uh, but it may turn out to benefit him because he's mischaracterizing it. You know, he's pretending like, you know, this old term completely exonerated. Well, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just not gonna comment anymore. Yeah. By the way, we should, uh, Source New Mexico reached out to the lawmakers, uh, uh, Senator Linda Lopez here in Albuquerque, of course, Senator Benicendo Hemis, uh, Senator Crystal Diamond Deming, and Pat Woods, of course, from Broadview. All of them refused or to comment or did not return calls. Uh, Merritt, we talked about this situation on the program seven months ago when it started. A female, <laughs> lob a female lobbyist uh, claims Mr. Ivy Soto groped her multiple, harassed her multiple times and groped her. She, she also claims the senator blocked voting rights policy she was pushing because she'd rejected his sexual advances. There were calls for his resignation then and nothing happened. It's a long time ago. Should the governor step in if, this, if his peers won't take any action here? Well, I, I think a lot of the silence uh, is interesting. I yeah. think the silence from the governor is interesting, who was certainly willing to speak out over Senator Padilla, Michael Padilla, several years ago, and um, uh, basically shut down his lieutenant uh, gubernatorial bid. Um, I think the silence from the Republican Party of New Mexico um, is surprising, who are generally willing to jump on any hint 
um, of a scandal uh, from the opposition. And I'm, I'm frankly disappointed that my fellow Republicans aren't willing to speak out on the topic of sexual harassment. And as you may remember, um, I did not interview Mariana Anaya, who was um, unable to speak out um, after she filed her formal complaint right. due to confidentiality requirements. But I interviewed uh, three of Ivy Soto's accusers from the lobbying groups who wrote an open letter in follow-up to Mariana Anaya's um, open letter accusing him of eight more counts of harassment or sexual harassment. Wow. Uh, I interviewed them for two hours on live radio on KKOB. And... Um, I've, in, I've also conducted uh, a number of sexual harassment investigations on active duty in the Navy uh, to find probable cause to take further action uh, in my professional life. And I was uh, stunned at what these women told me and what they were willing to share in, in live media. So certainly I read and I read the uh, the leaked report from the special counsel brought in by the legislative ethics committee. Mm -hmm. He did find probable cause for two of the sexual harassment complaints. He did not find probable cause for one of just the harassment, uh, for the uh, one harassment complaint. Um, I feel that uh, reading from the reporting from the Santa Fe reporter and some statements from an interview with um, Senator Stewart, it appears that there may have been a tie vote from the four-person investigative subcommittee. Huh. And that's why it didn't go forward. And my guess mm -hmm. is it might have gone along partisan lines. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. that's just a guess because this is this is still politics. Yep. And <laughs> you know that's uh uh pol politics are uh are still in in play here. What I find um very interesting is you know, we see gaps in the policy. Uh, Mariana Anaya is not allowed to speak out. She filed a lawsuit uh, so that she um, is able to overturn this gag order and describe uh, from her perspective what has happened in this process. Because right now, the only person who can say anything is Senator Ivy Soto. Right. And he is certainly taking control of the narrative as best he can. Although this narrative is turning bizarre, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Martha Burke, let me ask you about that, this idea that Ms. Ravio Soto's accusers, they can't, be, they can't speak about this situation because of that confidentially, confidentiality requirement. Do, do we have a problem here with that requirement? We've got a big problem, too, yeah. because the accuser cannot speak out, but the accused can get out there and blab all he wants to. Right. And that is the most one-sided situation that I can flatly imagine. I have taken the liberty of um, sort of consolidating his defense. He wrote this big op-ed, which I know we're going to get into in a mm -hmm. minute, mm -hmm. but it boils down to this. He says, I didn't do it, but if I did it, it's because my mother was born in Cuba. I suffered child abuse and I can't hear very well. Right. Uh, I just wonder if he wears a hearing aid. I've been profoundly deaf since the age of 28, and I'm now 52, and I've managed to not be accused of sexual harassment. I would just like to put that on the record. <laughs> Martha, while I get to you for a quick second, though, I, I do want to get your opinion about what uh, Pro Tem Mimi Stewart had to say about this, or, or the accusations about her. Any sense of that? That's a pretty fairly heavy charge. Well, I agree it is a heavy charge, yeah. and she may have felt like, as many other people do, it's time for a heavy charge. 
I mean, we've got so much confusion here. As Merritt said, probably the committee deadlocked, mm -hmm. so they didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got the he can talk and she can't issue. And uh, it's, it's a really hairy ball of wax, so to speak, to use an outdated term. Mm -hmm. And so I think a heavy accusation may be appropriate at this time. Yeah. Yeah, interesting yeah. point there. Senator, I, I, I'm still pretty amazed at the timing of this whole thing. Mr. Ivy Soto says the Santa Fe reporter published the leaked report about an hour after he filed his report with the FBI. And if true, you know, the timing there isn't great optically, as they say. I mean... Is this as serious as the senator would have us believe? I mean, I, I just don't. No, okay. I think these kinds of leaks are what happens when you don't have a transparent process. Ah. Uh, this this process is clouded in secrecy. It's um, you know it's flawed in so many ways that it is hard to count. Um, but um, I'm really glad that that document was leaked. Uh, and I, I really encourage people to read that document uh, because it is eye-opening. And I, uh, to Merritt's point as to why there's been such silence uh, from uh, many sides on this, I think there are some people out there that are afraid of uh, Daniel Ivy Soto uh, and don't want to tangle with him because he, he does things like go to the FBI. Uh, and uh, make, uh, make all kinds of um, uh, harsh statements uh, that people are, frankly, he, he's intimidating. Um, and, I, and I must give a disclaimer because one of the, one of the uh, women that Merritt interviewed, uh, who also uh, signed uh, the, uh, one of the eight more complaints lodged against the senator, uh, was uh, the executive director at Common Cause. And you have to remember that these women come, come forth at some risk to their reputations, right. to their bills, uh, to, their, uh, to, their own, uh, to their own safety. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I really encourage people to read that report. Um, it, it includes not just uh, information about uh, the exact uh, accusations from Mariana Anaya, but several other instances of uh, alleged sexual harassment witnessed by other senators and representatives right. um, that I think are, uh, are relevant here. Um, and certainly relevant when it comes to the reputation of the Senate. Mm. Um, and the, the reputation of the Senate is really at stake here and unless there is some sort of uh, fix to this flawed process, uh, or uh, unless they uh, do something, uh, send a signal to the public that this kind of behavior is not acceptable, um, and expulsion is only one of the remedies that they have, uh, I think there's going to be a real loss of public confidence uh, in the New Mexico Senate. Right. And um, that's... Uh, that's going to spill over into uh, uh, political races that are happening in November. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's going to um, going to have some really long range implications. So mm -hmm. um, I think that there are two members of the Legislative Ethics Committee um, which uh, have proposed a fix to the the possible problem of a tie vote 
on that subcommittee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to be considered by the Legislative Council Committee on Monday. Ah. So tune in for that hearing. I think that should be uh, that should be interesting. Mm-hmm. But uh, first of all, why are the senators themselves judging themselves? Right. Why isn't there an independent <laughs> yep. body, the Ethics Commission, which we struggle to set up? Why isn't the, why don't they have a role in this rather than having uh, the other chickens, the other hens in the House uh, deciding uh, which one should be thrown out or not thrown out? And remember, when you're a senator, you want the vote of the person that may be exonerated. Right. So you're afraid to vote against that person. Yeah. Um, so anyway, just a few problems. I thank you so much, Senator, for that. That's that's insight. We couldn't have gotten anywhere else, and I very much appreciate that. I'm I'm very unclear where this is all going to head. I appreciate your point again about political season is upon us. Anybody can make anything of anything if they want to. But first things first, we got to fix this process where the accuser is held silent and the accused can just say whatever they want. Something right there just has to change. It's a little bit nutty, as they say. All right, thanks to our line opinion panel for that discussion for sure. Thanks to Gene and the line for that discussion. We'll be tracking this story as it develops. Senate President Pro Tem Mimi Stewart has asked Senator Ivy Soto to step down from his position as chair of the Senate Rules Committee. That hasn't happened yet. Now, there are some new developments in the governor's race, too. Republican nominee Mark Ronchetti is playing into a national trend, calling for a statewide referendum on abortion. But is this the right political move for his campaign right now? Here's Gene in the panel. Republican nominee Mark Ronchetti is calling for a referendum on abortion in a recent TV ad. Mr. Ronchetti has advocated for a ban on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, with exceptions for rape, incest, and the risk to physical health of the mother. An Albuquerque Journal poll from just a few weeks ago showed 57% of New Mexicans support few or no restrictions on abortion. So, Merritt, let me start here. Is this something that will resonate with voters? Or is Mr. Ronchetti and his team playing on a razor's edge here and hoping to fall on the, on the right side of it? And can they? Well, I think it's a very clever way to insert himself back into the abortion discussion. And um, I think the governor really felt that she had locked him out. So I think it's a smart play and it's and it's um, an appealing message. Hey, I shouldn't make that decision. Um, No politician should. The voters should. Now, the problem is by making it a voter decision, it becomes a constitutional amendment. Right. And then it's a matter of the question. The question would probably be very detailed. And in my view, that's not a constitutional amendment. That's a legislative question. And really, this is this isn't even a governor's question right now. It's become a governor's issue, but the way it works in this state is it would become a legislative matter and all the governor could do is possibly veto it. Mm -hmm. So it's not even, I mean, the governor has made it, has tried to make it her issue with her executive order, but all that is is just saying she's going to put some of her capital outlay for a taxpayer-funded abortion clinic, which may or may not resound well, but it doesn't matter because it just sounds like an executive order. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of disingenuous. Ron Keggy's message um, sounds very reasonable, but is a little disingenuous. But I think it was a clever play to get him back into the discussion. Mm -hmm. I think a smarter play would have been immediately after Uh, the governor came out with her executive order and kind of took ownership of the issue was to push back at her and say hey in my first uh, week in office 
I'm going to uh, issue an executive order and I'm going to allocate $10 million for CYFD. Uh, and we're going to have an independent oversight board. We're going to build um, an overnight facility in Bernalillo County uh, so kids have a safe place to stay uh, when uh, they uh, where they don't now when they have to be removed from a home. Mm -hmm. And we're going to hire more caseworkers. Could have um, really made an unsubtle point uh, to a lot of the right to life base mm -hmm. and hammered her back on CYFD. That moment's passed. Um, and I don't know that this is going to give him the legs uh, that he was really looking for, but I think it was a clever way to insert himself back into the discussion. Mm -hmm. Interesting point there. You let a gap sort of play out. It gets filled quickly. That's a very good point. Uh, Senator, uh, Governor Lujan Grisham, of course, as Merritt just mentioned, quickly responded to Mr. Roncari's ad with a statement saying she'll oppose any attempt to undo New Mexico's progress in protecting abortion rights. And that she stands against this quote-unquote clear attempt, as she said, to ban abortion. Does, as Merritt just sort of laid out brilliantly there, does this strengthen her position on the issue with voters? Uh, yes, I think so. I, yeah. I don't think uh, Ron Ketty's uh, proposal was that clever. Mm -hmm. It was following the playbook set by Lindsey Graham and um, the uh, Ron Johnson in uh, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. and, and it's digging the hole deeper uh, because, you know, when you're proposing additional uh, restrictions on abortion, um, however they're arrived at, in a state where 57% of uh, the voters uh, want abortion to remain legal, uh, that's, that's doing damage. And I think that's what uh, the governor has, has stated. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know whether Ron Ketty understands the process. As Merritt said, this would be a constitutional amendment. And I don't know whether he's aware uh, that that couldn't go on the ballot for several years, mm -hmm. even if it was to pass the legislature. Uh, the governor has nothing to do with constitutional amendments. Um, and um, I'm, I, it just, to me, shows his uh, lack of understanding of the process and his flailing around uh, to try to do something about this issue, which he is losing so so poorly he's trying to paint her as an extremist but he's coming off as the extremist mm. martha i got to work in the national stuff i'm particularly no particularly noting kansas we have had voters go to the polls and say no i don't think so <laughs> and we have now the numbers in new mexico and i'll throw one more number of course that you know mr ronchetti shows him seven points down in the polling is I, I, does this do anything for him, hitching his wagon to a, a bigger national trend? Well, I don't think he's hitching his wagon to a national trend. He's, he's dragging a millstone. Uh, the <laughs> vote in Kansas was 59% right. of the voters rejected. A, uh, taking away, Kansas actually has constitutional protections uh, for abortion and the, the uh, thing that was before the voters was, are we going to do away with that? Mm -hmm. And virtually 60%, 59% said no. And uh, so he's tone deaf, but I want to address a couple of other things that he is doing. He's, and this hasn't got anything to do with the governor. He's being very disingenuous with his language. He has proposed a 15-week uh, abortion ban, which is contrary to what we had under Roe, which was essentially 20 to 24 weeks. Mm -hmm. 
and he keeps throwing out the term late-term abortion. And at one point, he threw out the phrase abortion up to the moment of birth. Oof. Uh, 15 weeks is not a late-term abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's a, a misnomer. It's the wrong kind of language to use, but people who are not down in the weeds of this issue might not know that. And so he's trying to say, well, I'm really not against all abortions, just these late-term ones at 15 weeks. But there's another thing here, Gene, that I think we really need to pay attention to. And that is that New Mexico already has, speaking of constitutional amendments, New Mexico has an equal rights amendment. Mm -hmm. And it has been enforced since 1972. And many constitutional scholars will tell you that a constitutional equal rights amendment protects the right to abortion. And that debate uh, is mostly settled. There are a few outliers that say, well, we're not sure, mm-hmm. but it's mostly settled. And I want to give you a little bit more history Please. about New Mexico and, and this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1995, uh, HHS in New Mexico uh, restricted funding for abortion under the state's Medicaid program. Uh, the ACLU and Planned Parenthood took them. Oh, that happens now and again. We'll see if Martha clicks back in, perhaps not. I'll go to the senator here while Martha's signal kind of comes back around. Senator, I want to get your thoughts on the national stuff as well, Kansas and all that, but there's an interesting situation going on across the country where we've gone so far. I mean, there's been talk in Wisconsin to hold a ballot referendum to add rape and incest exceptions to their law, which bans nearly all abortions. Michigan has a ballot item that would add the right to an abortion to the state constitution. There's ways to push back at this. Who wins in the long run? Women win. Uh, women win when their rights are protected. Okay, yeah. And as I said, uh, New Mexico has an equal rights amendment. All this bluster about us voting on it and so forth is just so much hoo-ha. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New Mexico Supreme Court has already ruled that abortion is covered under the New Mexico Equal Rights Amendment. Right. Either they're going to have to appeal, repeal that or they're sunk on their arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, Senator, please do pick up on that and, and what you see going on out there in the context of New Mexico and, and can this man actually get some traction with this approach? Well, you know, I think that various sides try to use the referendum process uh, for their own end. And as Martha said, uh, in New Mexico, even if there was a refer, and we don't have a referendum process in New Mexico, we just have a constitutional amendment process. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even if we, let's say we did, and it passed, it most likely would be struck down by the Supreme Court. Ah. Um, so I, you know, I think that's the way it works in New Mexico. Now, take Michigan, for example, where um, the um, anti-abortion activists were trying like heck to prevent a measure that would uh, protect legal abortion from getting on the ballot. That's right. Because the spacing was too tight in the ballot. This is this is the right. kind of argument they were down to there. And this is this is the kind of uh, desperation with which they didn't want women to vote and mm-hmm. folks to vote on this given what happened in Kansas. So the judge there 
uh, ruled that, it, yes, it could go on the ballot. Mm -hmm. And so we, we will see what happens in Michigan, uh, because sometimes these ballot initiatives have have spillover effect on other races. Exactly. They might bring out um, either f uh, pro or con that would affect, for example, the governor's race mm -hmm. uh, in Michigan, which is very heated. Exactly right. Merritt, I got a crazy question for you, but what happens if Mr. Ronchetti wins? Do you really see him pushing to have this added, uh, well, you know, to the ballot? It, I, I just, I'm curious. I I don't see abortion rights changing regardless of who wins the governor's race because yeah. the way things stand in New Mexico, abortion rights are decided by the legislature. Mm -hmm. And the Republican Party in New Mexico has a, a, quite an uphill battle to make a dent uh, that would uh, get to where they could overcome a veto. Mm. Uh, so I don't, uh, I, I don't see that happening. Also, I think the Kansas vote was a bellwether for the RNC and state Republican parties everywhere to really think, is this what you want? Right. Because I think uh, ground has been lost for the uh, general election. Um, I think uh, women are going to vote differently than they uh, have ever before. Uh, I think you're going to see more women taking a, a centrist, independent, and, and I'm talking Republican women. Um, I think uh, voting is uh, going to be very different on this issue. And so uh, state parties have to be very ca careful how they couch this. And to be honest, the New Mexico Republican Party doesn't have uh, uh, the votes anywhere close to in the legislature to really impact this issue. Right. So were uh, Mark Ronchetti to win, uh, win the governor's race, not, I don't think anything would happen. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for that discussion. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Martha, please. Say Sorry. that one more time. May I add a small footnote? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, in Kansas, Merritt, you're absolutely right. Kansas is deep red, but women cross the aisle in droves wow. to vote against that proposition. And I think uh, Ronchetti would have a hugely uphill battle. It would be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, and so women are going to vote differently on this regardless of party. We've already seen that. I'm glad you got that in, absolutely. State lawmakers are considering raising taxes on alcohol in the upcoming 2023 session. I told you about that last week on the podcast, but will next year be any different than it was in 2017 when lawmakers took up a tax hike but it failed to get out of committee? Gene and the panel debate the likelihood in their final segment of the podcast. State lawmakers say they're considering raising taxes on alcohol in the upcoming session. In an update to their recent series, Blind Drunk, New Mexico In-Depth is reporting several influential state lawmakers are open to the idea of raising alcohol taxes. Among them, Representative Patty Lundstrom and State Senator George Munoz of Gallup and Senate President Pro Tem Mimi Stewart. Now, raising alcohol taxes have been proven to lower alcohol-related deaths, but when it comes to voters, Many may say, well, that won't impact me, but higher prices will. Now, Senator, I want to start with you on this. Will lawmakers stand behind this if there's any resistance from voters? Or are the numbers just that clear when it comes to taxes and alcohol use that it's just going to win the day there? What, what's your sense of it early on here? Well, I, I think the polling data shows that voters do support increased taxes on um, 
on uh, alcohol. Mm -hmm. And uh, in McKinley County, they have already voted with their feet. And there is a local option tax on alcohol, which goes directly into um, DWI councils right. and uh, drug prevention programs there where they have a very big, big problem. Mm -hmm. um, but it's going to be a very tough road in the uh, in the New Mexico legislature. And I, I don't know how um, how tough or soft the support is hmm. from the finance shares okay. uh, coming from Gallup. And um, I think, though, we are long overdue for a reform. Uh, taxes on alcohol are uh, cheap and, and buying a drink of beer, wine or a mixed drink is cheaper now than it's ever been yep. when it comes to the taxes. But the entrenched interests in the legislature are uh, are severe. And Cisco McSorley found that out in 2017. There have been countless attempts to do this in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, none of them really successful since the um, the crisis uh, in the early 1990s with Nadine Milford and that horrific crash. That's when we had a big wave of um, of reform where the blood alcohol level was set at 0.08. Mm -hmm. uh, and when um, taxes were raised uh, at that time, a very little bit, and they set a real minefield because when they set the tax rate, uh, it was based not on the price, but on the volume That's right. of the drink, That's right. uh, which meant that, you know, it, it really hasn't risen since uh, 1994, despite the inflationary uh, costs that have have happened in the, but you know the alcohol industry, one of the most powerful in the state. We talk a lot about oil and gas, mm -hmm. but remember the restaurant industry, the tourism industry, the uh, convenience store industry, which incidentally includes a lot of the oil companies mm -hmm. like Marathon and Bolin. Mm -hmm. um, these are people that are there to bar the door. And it, also the warm and fuzzier industries, the wineries, the uh, breweries, things yep. that we are counting on to um, increase economic development. They're there to bar the door. Uh, so it's a very difficult thing, a very worthy thing, yep. though, because New Mexico taxpayers are already paying. That's brilliantly laid out. Uh, you know, this, the, the nature of the wall that must be hurdled. And Martha, interestingly, uh, one anecdote here, if we, we were to raise taxes, that would mean more state revenue, of course. About half of the money generated from alcohol taxes goes towards the state's general fund. Uh, where should we use the new money if taxes are raised? It, like Senator just mentioned for, you know, help with folks who are struggling with alcohol or just some slush fund or what's the best way to handle this revenue? Well, I said so Diddy may disagree, but maybe the general fund is sort of a slush fund. Right. <laughs> uh, I do think that it should go uh, into alcohol rehab. Uh, we do have a huge problem in the state. And by the way, the research shows that it's not all Gallup. It's not all our, right. our Native American population. Thank you. It is everybody. Yep. And right now, the, the structure is, as Didi said, it's uh, taxed by volume. 
and not uh, by the retail price. That makes it regressive, uh, a very regressive tax. And I think that could be the first thing. This legislature could say, well, we're really not raising the tax. We're just shifting it a bit. And we're going to shift it over to the retail price. Uh, But I think that the money probably should not go into the general fund. We, We know We've got a problem, one of the biggest problems in, in the United States. So the tax ought to go to remedy that problem. Mm-hmm. Let me say a little bit else about that, though. We have our alcohol drunk limit, if you will, to mm-hmm. use a colloquial term, is uh, 0.08 is the legal limit in the state. Mm-hmm. We need to lower that. Okay. In most states, it's 0.05. And that way, I think we have people, some people, uh, would be a lot more careful about how much they drink in the first place. Mm-hmm. Merritt, I got a quote here from um, Jason Harper. Quote, as a fiscal conservative, I can accept and support additional taxation that addresses that social ill. But where I cross the line is now let's use the tax code to discourage people from using that product. End quote. Has he just missed the point here? I mean, that's the point, is to get, discourage people from using the product well, overall. I don't, I- Mm-hmm. I don't like sin taxes either. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that seems to be the only fix anybody has is let's just raise uh, raise taxes. You know, we've done this uh, with cigarettes and people still smoke. Um, I think the only way a tax increase is justified is all the money has to go into uh, behavioral health. Okay. Um, and we also, though, have to look at separate legislation and create new programs to address our behavioral uh, behavioral health and rehab. We also have to look at public intoxication in addition uh, to uh, uh, driving while intoxicated, driving under the influence. That's only part of it. Um, And that's a huge problem we see with the homeless explosion in our urban areas and in our state. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not just drugs, it's alcohol. And treatment and intervention and public intoxication, uh, we need to not just uh, uh, offer treatment and get people into treatment. We also need to, you know, uphold some of our anti-vagrancy, whatever you want to call it, our laws that you can't be in the park after 10 o'clock. You you have to, you know, be out of public. You shouldn't be publicly intoxicated. We have to enforce our laws. Mary, I, I, I got a, a question for you, uh, just because we're a little crunchy on time here, and hopefully Senator uh, can get in on this too. But the public's looking to the legislature for some guidance on this, but alcohol is a just, the place is just besotted with alcohol sometimes during this session. I mean, are these the right people to be making these decisions? I mean, you know, Well, Senator Ivy Soto, certainly, um, he, uh, when questioned, it's come up in his uh, accusers that he keeps a wine refrigerator in his Senate office. And when questioned about it, he admitted in an interview, he thinks it brings a more collegial tone to his meetings. Um, I would prefer that our legislators not be drinking while they set policy. Mm -hmm. Senator, can I get your thought on that too? Yeah, I mean, I think that's obvious. That's really obvious. But... Mm -hmm. um, when you have a liquor lobby that supplies free liquor to the legislators, right. uh, it's, it's hard to turn down. And uh, the result is that um, we're pay- us taxpayers are paying the bill even more so with the reluctance to address 
behavioral health problems and spend money on those. I mean, the, the, the whole thing about this issue, I, and I, I get tired of people saying that they're opposed to sin taxes. Sin taxes work. Uh, the rate of uh, smoking amongst adolescents has gone down. Uh, when we re- well, it's also banned. You can't smoke if you're under 18. You can't buy them. That's more than a sin tax. Yes, but that, as you said, that has not been enforced. Um, and uh, many parents condone their uh, children's smoking. Mm-hmm. But the point is, taxpayers are already paying the bill for the damages of alcohol, not just in terms of traffic fatalities, but in terms of cirrhosis of the liver uh, amongst Medicaid patients. Uh, Who's paying for that? That's right. We're paying for that. Got to stop you there, Senator. Sorry, we're just a little short on time there. That series, Blind Drunk from New Mexico In-Depth, I encourage folks to read it at seven parts. I mean, this is in-depth as you can possibly get. All right, thanks again to the line panel. Now, last month, we hosted a panel discussion about our state's extraordinary alcohol-related death rate, as I just mentioned. But during that discussion, journalist Ted Alcorn, two doctors, and State Representative Joanne Ferrari highlighted the proven effectiveness of higher alcohol taxes. You can watch that entire discussion online on our New Mexico and Focus YouTube page or listen back on August 22nd episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Gene, our panelists, and everyone who helped contribute to the podcast this week. Please weigh in on our Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook pages if you have any thoughts on any of those topics. And as always, thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like it, check out our show Friday nights at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. If that doesn't work for you, we always repost the shows on our YouTube channel along with individual segments so you can watch it there too. And those individual segments are great because you can just pop in and watch 10 minutes at a time instead of the whole show in one sitting. Also, please keep an eye out on our social media pages for updates throughout the week and for previews leading up to our shows on Friday nights. Thanks again, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, September 26th, 2022. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.